You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who can't decide whether I'd rather go to Saudi Arabia and antagonize the crown prince or spend the rest of my life with Peter Thiel as my roommate. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Joining us today from Lebanon is Ben Hubbard, the Beirut bureau chief for The New York Times. He's also the author of a new book called MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. MBS is, of course, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and has become a major investor in several global tech companies through SoftBank's Vision Fund, including Uber. He recently achieved public notoriety in America in 2018, however, when he was linked to the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Most recently, he was blamed for the hacking of Amazon CEO's Jeff Bezos's phone. So there's a lot to talk about here, not just in tech, but around the world. So, Ben, let's get started, and welcome to Rico Decode. Thank you. Happy to be here. First of all, amazing book. I have to say, I was just this is the kind of book I was waiting for, and, uh, and unfortunately, it's debuting during the coronavirus crisis. Nonetheless, this is a critical book everybody should read if they need to understand what's happening in the Middle East, which is also critical to our world right now. So I want to start by talking about how, why you decided to write about this and, 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 and sort of the, the steps you did to do this, because... It seems like every month there's something else that's critically important to understand about this particular ruler. Well, the project evolved over time. My my original kind of idea was much less controversial and I would say much less confrontational. Um, and I had started covering Saudi Arabia in 2013 under the previous monarch. I kept, you know, and so then I was already had two years of experience with the kingdom before MBS showed up on the scene in early 2015. And then very quickly we realized, you know, this guy is unique. This is a kind of character, a kind of force that we don't see very often in the world, much less in the Middle East. And uh, it was in 2016 that I, you know, access for journalists to Saudi Arabia is always a major issue. They historically have made it pretty difficult for people to get in. In 2016, for various reasons, I suddenly found myself with a five-year multi-entry visa to Saudi Arabia. And so I started thinking, okay, well, I live in Beirut. Saudi Arabia is like a three-hour flight away. I'm going to be you know, if this visa lasts, I can go and come and I can, you know, for the next five years, I should do a book. Because mm-hmm. when I had started writing about Saudi Arabia, I was a bit frustrated about sort of how few good books there are about Saudi society, about Saudi culture and, you know, politics, things like that. There, You know, there's just not a lot written about the place compared to many other countries in the Middle East. And, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of talked about that idea. There was sort of mild interest here and there. Oh, maybe Saudi Arabia, I don't know. And then by 2017, I, I would say after the 
sort of kidnapping and forced resignation of Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon, and then the, the infamous lockup at the Ritz, both of which we can talk about if you're interested. Yes, 100%. You know, th- these events really sort of made everybody wake up and say, holy cow, like, this is somebody we have not seen before. And, you know, so basically realized, no, the book needs to not be about Saudi Arabia. It needs to be specifically about Mohammed bin Salman. People want to know who this guy is, where did he come from, what is he up to, what are we going to expect to him, and what does he think, what is he trying to do? So that's that's when I really sort of focused in on him. So let's talk about who he is. Uh, what's really interesting about this book, which I don't think people realize, and I didn't actually, and I, I do cover him quite a bit in terms of his relations with tech people, sure. um, was that he is sort of a creature of Saudi Arabia. Most of the princes, and uh, try to say, explain how he got to power very briefly. It's a, it's a long story, but who his father is, how his father got to power, and then how he's different from the other princes, um, which I think is because he's Saudi Arabian born and bred, essentially. When I started working on this, I mean, I was a bit amazed at how little we knew about my, and I, I don't mean just me, but I think sort of what was in the public record about Mohammed bin Salman before he showed up in 2015. You know, anywhere else in the world, if you had had a force come to power like this, a crown prince, a deputy crown prince, a, a young prime minister, for example, or, you know, anything, and suddenly had like launched a war, launched a massive social and economic reform program for his country, you know, become the one of the sort of senior members of the board of the state oil company, we would all be wondering, who the heck is this person? Where did they come from? You would have investigative reporters going back to their hometown, asking around, trying to find, you know, the first girlfriend, the old friends, the high school teacher, first employer, what kind of, you know, what do we know about this person? Because it's Saudi Arabia and it's an absolute monarchy, almost none of this happened. And so for the first few years he was around, we didn't really know anything about this guy. So it was something that I really felt the the need to dig into for the book. And I think I was able to sort of get a pretty good picture of that. Many, many Saudi princes go abroad for education. Many, many Saudi princes spend a lot of time abroad for various things, for pleasure, for fun. You know, they own properties in the south of France or they, they own properties in Mayfair and London and they go there for the summers. Or they, you know, so many, many members educated, of the And are educated are, outside of Saudi Arabia. And, yeah, and let's, it's a, let's be right. clear, there are thousands of princes, correct? Is that? Is yes. That, yeah, yes. okay, go ahead. Definitely thousands of princes. And if you look inside of, so anyway, let's, so so the story for, for MBS really starts with his father, Salman. So Salman is one of the sons of the king who founded Saudi Arabia in 1932, which gives him a very senior status That's his, inside of the But he's the, the 26th family. son, right? Is that correct? The, 20, the 25th son. Fifth son, okay, all right. So, so he's one of, the, one of the second generation, but very low down the totem pole. So he... Uh, he spent most of his life as the governor of Riyadh province, which is not an incredibly prestigious job, but it was one that you know allowed him to get a very good index on Saudi society. And this is really where MBS gets his education. MBS has a number of older half-brothers who are very accomplished. One of them was you know, the first Arab astronaut. He flew on the space shuttle Discovery. Another one has a PhD from Oxford. Other ones ran media companies. They you know, one of them was part of an upset at the Kentucky Derby when he bought a horse race, you know, he bought a thoroughbred a few weeks before it won the race. I mean, these are people that were out in the world doing things, were well-known. MBS doesn't really have any of and that he, kind they, of these were the, Just he, to be clear, these were the first sons of the first wife. So these are the ones in line. Right. So these these would be MBS's older half-brothers. These are the sons of Selman's first wife. So MBS basically doesn't do any of that. He grows up in Riyadh. He, he's very, very close to his father. He basically shadows his father, and this is his education. He works for him sort of in an unofficial capacity while he's the governor of Riyadh. And 
you know, in my estimation, this is what gave him a very deep understanding of Saudi society. He, you know, his father is receiving people all the time. He's the prince of this big province. So you've got clerics coming in, you have business people coming in, you have other members of the royal family coming in, you've got tribal figures coming in. And MBS sits there and watches all of this. And I think that gave him, made him very well acquainted with what Saudi Arabia was. He stays in the kingdom for university. He gets a law degree from King Saud University. And then instead of going abroad, he goes to work for this sort of internal, it's kind of like a think tank or a research body that advises the Saudi cabinet, does that for a short period of time. And then he goes back to work for his father. And that's basically it. I mean, you can, you can download his resume from the you know, various sort of Saudi government websites, and there's just kind of not a lot there. Um, until suddenly in 2015, you know, King Abdullah, the previous monarch, dies. King Salman becomes king. And MBS shows up and very quickly just starts getting these massive portfolios. He's named the Minister of Defense. Shortly after that, he launches a new military intervention in Yemen. He's put at the head of the board of Saudi Aramco, the Saudi oil monopoly, which is really the kingdom's economic crown jewel. It's the the number, you know, the, the fundamental engine of the Saudi economy, and he's given oversight of it. This is kind of like the Jared Kushner of Saudi Arabia, right? Just he's just there and he's been given these enormous portfolios of power because his father was made king, which nobody thought he was good. He was the brother of the king who died before right, him. Right, right, right. Correct? Yeah. Yes. So he's closest to the person who now suddenly finds himself king. Right. Correct. Yes. And, right. and and Salman, for whatever reason, when he becomes king, he decides that of all of his sons and of all the other princes in the royal family, he could have really chosen anybody that he wanted. He, for whatever reason, chose Mohammed bin Salman. So here he is running things and starts to get really active. What kind of person was he? Why did he suddenly start being so active and having opinions and, and actions like this? Well, you hear various things. I mean, people who spend a lot of time with him say this is somebody who has tremendous self-confidence. He is incredibly confident that he knows what needs to be done and that he knows how to do it. He loves foreign consultants. And so, you know, from the moment that he came in, he spent huge amounts of money bringing in people from pretty much every consulting firm that you can think of. You had people from Booz looking at, you know, Booz Allen, which is now called Strategy and, I believe, looking at the military. You know, you had McKinsey coming, Boston Consulting Group, pretty much everybody that you can think of coming in, studying various parts of Saudi economy, Saudi society, what needs to change, how are we going to do it, producing various reports. And he just places enormous stock in these people to try to figure out what, what needs to change in Saudi Arabia and how to do it. Why change? Why This was something, you now Saudi Arabia had sort of been this sort of traditional place, and suddenly he wanted to come in and make it. And that's why he was so well-liked initially, correct? Because this was the guy who was going to change everything and make it mo- modernize Saudi Arabia because when the oil money goes away, they need to have a whole new direction, correct? So I think even people who don't like Mohammed bin Salman or don't like what he's done, pretty much everybody agrees that Saudi Arabia was ripe for a change. This was a place that had been, you know, you know, sort of governed according to, you know, it's ruled by a rural family. It's one of the few remaining absolute monarchies in the entire world. It has a very close political system. It has an economy that's almost entirely dependent on oil. And, you know, all, every sector of the economy goes back to oil in some way or another. Social life was governed by an incredibly, you know, strict interpretation of Islam that kept men and women very, you know, segregated in public places. It, you know, didn't, you know, you didn't have music, you didn't have theater, arts were looked down upon. I mean, it was a very, you know, there was this obviously the long-term, long-standing ban on women driving. I mean, this was a place that was really, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, inside and outside of Saudi Arabia felt like it was time for a change. And there's every reason to believe that that's how MBS felt, that he... You know, unlike many of the elderly kings that you'd had, I mean, he came in as 
first deputy crown prince and then crown prince, just thinking that this place needs to change. We can't continue to be like this. This is not the the lifestyle that I want to have. It's not the lifestyle that people of my generation want to have. And and the economic realities were harsh. You know, we had gone from seeing oil at $140 a barrel, and then he comes in in 2015 when the price is starting to decline. And it's been, you know, safely below 100 ever since. Now it's what? Somewhere around 30, 35. You know, it's, it's, it's much, much lower than that. So, you know, they used to be able to do a lot of these things because they had huge amounts of money. And so they could just sort of, you know, spend it on the population and keep people happy. And eventually that calculus flipped. You know, you had oil prices were low, which crunched the budget. And you have a huge population. Now there's 22 million Saudis. About two-thirds of them are under age 30. And so the old calculation just doesn't work anymore. The government cannot afford to employ all of these people. And so, you know, MBS sees all this happening and says, okay, well, we need to find a way to diversify the economy. We need more sectors, you know, than oil. We need to do, you know, do all these different things, open up the society and entertainment and movie theaters and women driving. And, and so he really tries to jump in and do all these things at once. Right. And that's seen as a good thing, as a fresh, a fresh air. I recall, like, sort of profiles and the concepts of him. I, I'd been approached by a lot of Silicon Valley people that said, this guy's for real, this is really interesting. And, of course, he wanted to find, you know, there had been previous Saudis who had invested in Twitter, uh, Saudi princes, um, who had done that. But they were very excited about the opening of Saudi Arabia, making investments there and things like that. So he was seen as a breath of fresh air, Correct. Oh, there was buzz all over the place. I mean, you know, there people were very excited about this idea. You had a number of very high-profile, you know, correspondents, columnists who went and met with him, who wrote sort of these glowing pieces about how this guy was going to change everything. You, you definitely had a lot of excitement in international business community. You know, this guy's going to do things different, and uh, it's going to open up all these new possibilities. And I mean, you can almost graph this. I, I, you know, maybe we don't want to get ahead of ourselves in the story, but you can almost graph this, that sort of he comes on the scene in 2015, and he kind of goes up, 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 up. And I think the high point is really March 2018, and then the decline begins. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you want to map. You want me to map the whole thing out? No, go ahead. Tell go. me. Go ahead. Yeah, we will in the next section. But wait, wait, so what happened? Why was that the high point? Well, he comes. So in, in in June 2016, he takes a trip to the United States and he goes to Facebook. He meets with Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. They release photos he of does, him sitting and chatting with Mark Zuckerberg. He puts on this you know VR headset and these photos go crazy in Saudi Arabia. Young Saudis have never seen a senior member of the royal family meet with someone like Mark Zuckerberg for one, and then and then be excited about new technology. I mean, this guy here, he is trying out Mm -hmm. this new headset and we're going to, you know, and so they sort of feel like, wow, maybe this is going to be the guy who brings us this breath of fresh air. So anyway, this goes on and on and on. I think the peak for Mohammed bin Salman so far, in March 2018, he takes this massive, he does two massive trips. First, he goes to the UK. He meets with the queen. He meets with the heads of MI5, MI6. He goes to parliament, meets the foreign ministry, sort of meets everybody across the board, is very well received. And then he flies to the United States for this absolutely remarkable trip. He spends a number of weeks. He goes to five states plus the District of Columbia. He meets with three former presidents. He meets with a sitting president in the Oval Office. And he meets with everybody, almost everybody you can think of from the business tech community. I mean, in Manhattan, he He meets Mike Bloomberg at Starbucks and they have a coffee together. Then he flies out to Seattle and he sees Bill Gates. And he takes a walk with Bill Gates. And then he he goes to MIT. He goes to Harvard. He meets with Oprah. He goes to Silicon Valley. He visits Google. He visits Facebook. He visits, I mean, he goes everywhere. And every and then he flies down to Hollywood of all places. And, you know, Hollywood, in a way, sort of represents everything that 
Saudi Arabia traditionally opposed. I mean, this is sort of, you know, Hollywood sort of seen as entertainment and libertine and everything. And here you have the crown prince of Saudi Arabia going to Hollywood and meeting with Bob Iger and meeting with, you know, these big Hollywood producers and sort of generating a lot of interest and in saying, listen, we want to bring what you have to Saudi Arabia. We want to have an entertainment industry. We want to have amusement parks. We want to start producing our own movies. And you know, very few deals tech, were signed. Tech, creating tech cities. Tech yeah, 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 I mean, he really saw this as, you know, he wanted to bring these people to Saudi Arabia. I think he sort of hoped that maybe we can get Facebook to open an office. Maybe we get Amazon to open up a data center. Maybe we can get, you know, Google to do something else. Uh, that, you know, he really saw this, you know, sort of bringing these people to Saudi Arabia as part of his master plan for what he wanted to change in the country. And there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm about it. I mean, everybody from Bill Gates to Richard Branson to, you know, there were a lot of people who were willing to sit with him and listen to him and get excited about his ideas. Uh, the problem is, if we want to get to this already, that there were a lot of other sort of nasty things happening back home that I think people like me who were sitting in the Middle East were paying a lot of attention to, but people who were sitting on the perhaps east and west coast of the United States were not paying as much attention to. We're going to get to that in a second. We're here with Ben Hubbard, the author of a new book about Mohammed bin Salman called MBS. He's a New York Times reporter. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. We're here with Ben Hubbard. He's a New York Times reporter who's written a tremendous book called MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. For those who don't know who he is, he's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He's also been an active investor in U.S. companies, especially tech companies. He's also been responsible for some really terrible things that have happened in the past couple of years, and we're going to talk about those now. Ben, so here he is at the peak. He's at Google. I remember when he was there. They they, they actually wanted people to come in and be part of this. I found the whole thing ridiculous because I had been aware of the thuggish qualities of this particular uh, ruler and of, of Saudi society, which had been had, had sort of pushed down on women and all kinds of other issues and journalists. Here he is sort of being feted. He gives all this money to SoftBank's Vision Fund on the world stage, well Welcomed by the White House with President Trump and Jared Kushner, very close. What happens? Well, I think a lot of these nasty things that had been going on sort of begin to catch up with him. The, if you want to move chronologically, the first was the, the military intervention in Yemen. And I know that it's often portrayed as the Saudi war in Yemen. To, I mean, if you know, the war began before Saudi Arabia entered. It was originally a civil war. Basically, you had a sort of a scrappy militant group from the northern part of the country get angry about their share of the government. And they stormed the capital. They took it over and um, you know, basically started to impose their own kind of rule on, on northern Yemen. The Saudis don't like them, and so they get together with a number of other Arab countries, and they launch a military intervention, and which becomes terrible very quickly. I mean, we basically realize that, you know, the United States has been selling billions and billions of dollars in weapons to Saudi Arabia. We're talking high-tech jets, bombs, smart bombs, guidance kits. I mean, pretty much everything that you can think of they're buying from the United States. And and the idea was really that the Saudis would never use these things. It was kind of, you know, these purchases were made as a way of underlying, of um, 
sort of confirming the alliance with the United States, but nobody ever really expected they would go to war with them. Right, that they just buy them. They come in, they buy their tanks. They yeah, and we're more than happy to sell them. And the next thing you know, you have Saudi pilots who, who don't really have the skills to hit targets, and they're dropping bombs from incredibly high up. They're hitting schools, weddings, funerals. You know, the civilian death toll sort of goes off the charts, and it's just it becomes this really, really nasty war that they're involved in. So you have that rumbling in the background to this day. It's kind of gone up and down in terms of the level of the violence, but this much, you know, after this many years, they're not the Saudis are not really any closer to what they declare as victory than they were when they started. So there's that. Um, at home, it becomes very clear that MBS is interested in social opening, and by that I mean, okay, he wants to have entertainment, he wants to have movie theaters, concerts, he wants women to have more ability to move around, loosen up the dress code, they can mingle a bit more with men in restaurants, coffee shops, but he is absolutely uninterested in any kind of political liberalization. This guy is not talking about democracy. He's not talking about popular participation in government. He's not even really talking about, you know, you as a citizen being able to express yourself on how you think things are going. And so you see this quite harsh crackdown on, on anybody who's critical of anything that he wants to do. There are repeated waves of arrest. We see intellectuals arrested, clerics arrested, activists arrested. Uh, and, it, and it really changes the mood inside Saudi Arabia where people basically realize, you know, if you want to talk about him, it better be positive or you better keep yourself quiet. Right. And in, as opposed to, say, you know, President Trump has a very similar style, actually. But he, he, this guy has an ability to put everybody in jail without unilaterally, without any recourse. One of the things I found striking was you had Uber and other companies sort of over there at their various investment banking events that they have uh, in Saudi Arabia and pushing the fact that women can drive. I remember, and they were jailing the women who had, had been active to try to get that to happen uh, at the same time, which was sort of a, a real disconnect and uh, a problem for a lot of people who are watching it at the same time. Oh yeah, of course. You know, I mean, you'd had you'd had you'd had you know some of the activists who were best known for fighting for this, you know, rounded up and put in prison. At least one of them is still in jail and on trial, and you know, I'm still in touch with her family, and they're just basically wondering what's going to happen with the trial. When's it going to conclude? What is she going to be convicted of? And you know, MBS, he's had sort of this tendency for own goals. You know, if you follow soccer or, you know, with football as it's known outside of the United States, like there's, you know, this idea of the own goal where you sort of accidentally kick the ball into your own goal. And MBS has had kind of a surprising number of these. It's like, listen, if you're a Saudi leader, you have one chance in Saudi history to give women the right to drive. Like, this is a PR coup. You can be the one to get credit for this. You know, the United States has been pushing for this for decades. You can be the guy to do it. And the next thing you do is go out and invent, you know, and like arrest a bunch of nonviolent activists, women activists. I mean, come on. Like, yeah. couldn't you have seen that that wasn't going to go over very well? Right. And so there's a lot. So anyway, so then we have sort of the general crackdown at home. We have to get back to this tech stuff, we have a lot of sort of crazy tech stuff that happens. I mean, MBS realizes very early on that he can marshal new technologies to the service of his authoritarian surveillance. Right, and and we see this kind of in two ways. There's, I think, the first kind of batch of technologies have to do with social media monitoring and manipulation, where he basically realizes that you know Twitter is incredibly important for Saudis and how they understand the world i mean much more than much more than in the united states saudis live on twitter everybody has a twitter account some people have two or three twitter accounts saudis are on twitter all the time and i think he you know he and his deputies realize that if we can shape the conversations on twitter we can actually shape the way that people understand reality and i and i don't think i'm overstating the case because they spend so much time on that platform to get their news and their information. And so, so you start seeing these sort of armies of bots, armies of 
what I don't think are bots, I think are probably paid accounts or or you know people who are sort of in in the service of him. You know, they basically realize that even if you have a conversation happening on Twitter that has you know thousands or tens of thousands of participants with not very many directed tweets, you can change the conversation. Either you can report it as offensive and get Twitter to take it down, and then it goes through you know whatever review process they do at Twitter. But then by you know by then the wave has passed. Or you can get on there and you can sort of muddy the waters. If people are complaining about something, you can get on and put up other information that might be true, that might be not true, that's deliberately false, and it can just kind of change the whole tenor of the conversation. On top of that, you just have the arrests of many prominent people on Twitter, which sort of sent the message to everybody else that you better watch what you say on Twitter, you could end up in jail. Mm-hmm. And then the second right. package is the hacking. You had, uh, I have a piece in the New York Times today actually about MBS's chief hacker, this gentleman named Sudul Khatani, who would become quite well known later thanks to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And this was a guy who kind of brought his, you know, come up through the royal court, was brought in quite early, worked under King Abdullah. And when MBS comes in in 2015, deputizes him with finding the best tools that they can find to use technology to their advantage. And so he gets in touch with Hacking Team, which was an Italian spyware company that was selling, you know, hacking tools and things to governments. Um, and he he basically starts experimenting with how we can use these things. And the, the, the entire picture is not clear because of the covert nature of these technologies. But looking back, we've seen quite a lot now. I mean, in over May, June 2018, we now have five confirmed cases of Saudi attempts, uh, one of them on me, that were all confirmed by Citizen Lab, which is a group of researchers at the University of Toronto, four Saudi activists that were targeted and actually hacked. And I received an attempt on my phone that I did not click on. And so we don't have any reason to believe that they actually got into my phone. And right before that, you had obviously the famous, you know, reported attempt on Jeff Bezos, which, you know, it takes really a lot of uh, a lot of gall to think that, you, should, you know, that it's a good idea to hack the phone of one of the richest men in the world. Right, right. And there's a reason for that. So let's get to what really sort of blew this open, which was the murder and dismemberment of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, which every single intelligence agency has linked directly to MBS and his team, the team that he sent out to deal with him. Give us the background of Jamal Khashoggi for those who don't know. He was a a columnist and he was actually somewhat close to the royal family for a long time. So for, for the vast majority of Jamal Khashoggi's life, he was part of the establishment in Saudi Arabia. He was a journalist who was seen as very close to the state. He was close to the royals. He sometimes traveled with the king. And he had lived in the United States. He studied, did his university in Indiana. And so for people like me and for many, many other people who worked on Saudi Arabia before me, when you had to write about Saudi Arabia, one of the first things you would do was track down Jamal Khashoggi's phone number and call him up. Because, you know, when something somewhat murky would happen in the kingdom, you know, let's say that there's a, you know, somebody else gets named to a new position, you don't know who this person is, or Saudi Arabia does something in foreign affairs that appears to be a bit baffling, you call up Jamal. And A, he was one of the few Saudis who would reliably answer his phone. And B, he would tell you what's going on. And he would say, oh, well, I think, you know, the king is really thinking about it this way. Or I think what's going on is this. Or, you know, what, what's, what the Saudis are really interested in, in this case is why. And so this was, you know, he was this incredible sort of asset, I think, to people like me who were covering Saudi Arabia, but also to the kingdom. Because they didn't have a lot of people like him who understood the kingdom, but who also understood the Western media and could engage with them and try to explain what was going on. And that's the way that he was. I mean, the guy is a household name in Saudi Arabia. Before his murder and before he became a dissident, everybody knew who Jamal Khashoggi was. 
And when MBS comes in, I, I write about this in my book, MBS actually saw him as an asset. You know, MBS releases his grand vision for the future of Saudi Arabia, which is called Vision 2030. And it's this sort of sprawling document that, you know, it's about the economy. We're going to diversify the economy, but it's also about what we want to do with social life, what we want to do with entertainment. We want Saudis to exercise more. We want, you know, all of these different things. And the day that he releases it, he hosts a, he kind of a reception for a number of prominent people in Saudi society. And one of them is Jamal Khashoggi. Like MBS at that point didn't consider him an enemy and actually considered him an asset. This is somebody that you wanted on your side because he's an ambassador. He talks to the Western media. He writes in the, you know, he goes on TV. He speaks in English. He speaks in Arabic. And But anyway, that relationship begins to sour over the next few years. Jamal becomes very critical of a lot of the the authoritarian things that MBS is doing at home, the crackdowns on freedom of speech. Then one of MBS's aides calls Jamal and basically says, you're done. No more talking on social media, no more talking on the media, no more publications. And this, ironically, is because of Donald Trump. Because? Because Jamal was one of the few Saudis when Donald Trump won the election who came out and said, this guy might be a problem for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you had this sort of very interesting, you know, the Saudis, I think, very much like, you know, most other, I think pretty much everybody else expected that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And they were quite shocked when Donald Trump won. Donald Trump obviously had a quite storied history of saying some, you know, not very nice things about Muslims and not very nice things about the Saudis themselves. I mean, even during the campaign, he, he would rail on the Saudis and he would use it as a weapon against Hillary Clinton, you know, in some of the debates. The Saudis basically realized if this guy won, we have to do everything to build a relationship with him. And so they very quickly put together a delegation. They send them to the East Coast. They meet with Trump business associates. They meet with political associates. They meet with Jared Kushner. They come back and they write this report that basically says, here's who these guys are. This new administration, they're not politicians. These guys are deal makers. They're business people. They're interested in the bottom line. They don't really know anything about the Middle East. They don't really know anything about Saudi Arabia. The only thing that they do know about the Middle East is Israel, and that's kind of the only thing that they care about. And so the Saudis kind of craft their approach to Donald Trump based on that. And Jamal is not with the program. Jamal sort of says, you know what, this guy, he said a lot of really nasty things about Muslims. And he wrote a column at the time that said, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of Trump, but we should prepare for him. And basically said, we need to take a cautious approach to this guy because we don't know what he's going to do. This is when he gets the phone call from the royal court that basically says, you're done. we're, We're shutting you off. No more Twitter, no more media appearances, no more articles. And he goes dark for... A bit less than a year, I believe, and and Jamal is just gone. And during that time, he sort of gets you know indications that if you stick around, you could get arrested, you could get travel banned, you may not be able to leave Saudi Arabia. And then so he eventually packs his bags and gets on an airplane and ends up uh, going back to uh, you know flying to the United States, where he moves into an apartment he had bought many years before in Tyson's Corner in Virginia, and and he sets up camp. And starts writing. And starts writing very quickly for the Washington Post. Um, they're critical pieces of Saudi Arabia and the yeah, relationship I mean, with the Trump administration. You know, if you're sort of used to American journalism or British journalism, yeah, it's not you that know, critical. That's what I'm saying, right? They're where you know, critical. where people really will go to the mat and say nasty things about political figures or whatever, they're not that bad. But you know, in the Saudi context, to be directly talking about the crown prince in this way, comparing him to Vladimir Putin, saying that he's you know wasting time, accusing him of revisionist history and the way that he talks about various parts of Saudi society. I mean, these are like, they, they were in the Saudi contest, you know, very harsh columns that Jamal was publishing mm-hmm. in the Washington Post. So what happens? We know what happens. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we'll try to tell the story quickly, but, um, you know, Jamal is, 
you know, in, in Washington trying to figure out what's going on. He eventually meets a young Turkish woman that he wants to marry. He proposes to her. She says yes. He, in order to get married in Turkey, he needs to prove that he's divorced from his previous marriage, which he has to go to the Saudi consulate. So he goes to the Saudi consulate. They say, oh, you know, we're very happy to see you. Why don't you come back in a few days? We'll have your document ready. And he goes back on, or, well, in early November 2018, walks into the consulate and never comes out. And then, you know, over the next few weeks, obviously, the details come out. The Turks, um, you know, leak out the details of what happened inside. And we find that there was a team of 15 Saudi agents who flew in that morning before he got there to intercept him. And they killed him. They murdered him and and dismembered him and uh, made his body disappear. And to this day, we don't know where it is. And it is linked directly, eventually, to MBS. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the CIA assessment, you know, I mean, it, the I, I actually the intelligence assessment. I actually think Donald Trump is right about this one. He keeps saying there is no smoking gun. But what pretty much everybody else will tell you is, okay, we don't have, nobody has an email or an intercept or anything of MBS saying, go get me this guy. Nobody has that. And, and I don't think the CIA has it. And if they do, they've kept it very well hidden. But the assessments by the CIA and by pretty much everybody else, by you know many, many other intelligence agencies, is that the way that this guy ran the kingdom, he's in charge of everything. He does not delegate um, people. This is not a country where people are big on personal initiative, where you as sort of a mid-level government intelligence official or whatever are just going to decide, oh, I'm going to, you know— take this very risky, you know, operation in a foreign country and just organize it myself. Like, it's just not the way that it happens in Saudi Arabia. So it's an incredibly complex operation. We have 15 agents who fly in, you know, a group of them on private jets. You know, they come in, they check into hotels, they they outfit the consulate, they disable the cameras, they're prepared and ready to go. I mean, they, like... This, this wasn't something that they just came up with last minute. You have another guy who's brought along because he's built like Jamal and they use him as a body double to go wander around Istanbul to try to convince the world that Jamal is still alive. I mean, it's like Keystone Cops sort of level of intelligence work. Murderous Keystone Cops, let's be clear. Yeah, let's, yeah of course. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. These, right. are, these are thugs. Yeah. Um, the idea is, especially because of this one man involved, that this is very, cl- it's very close to MBS. This right. is a group that's very close. Right. And therefore... It, whether it's a sort of godfather-like head nod or whatever, this is what was meant to happen. Right. It was not a, you know, people acting, going rogue and doing this uh, for the crown prince. Yeah, this is, you know, the Saudis have tried to say, oh, this group was sent to, quote-unquote, negotiate with Jamal. They were trying to per- persuade him to come back to the kingdom. But, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody really believes that, to be honest. Right. But there has been no repercussions, Correct. No, no real repercussions, because this guy's power is only uh, gained. And recently, after he had arrested a lot of princes, he did it again. And we're going to talk about that. And also him hacking Jeff Bezos' phone, which is an astonishing uh, thing to do. It would be impressive if it wasn't so appalling. Uh, when we get back, we're here with Ben Hubbard, the author of a new book about Mohammed bin Salman called MBS. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be right back. We're here with Ben Hubbard, the author of a new book on Mohammed bin Salman called MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. He is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and he's quite involved in the Trump administration. He's quite involved with all kinds of uh, nefarious things uh, going on recently, including um, the recent hacking of the phone of Amazon's uh, Jeff Bezos. Now, the reason for that's happening is because it's related to Jamal Khashoggi, correct, Ben? Well, I mean, I can't get inside the heads of the hackers and know why they did it. I mean, MBS had a quite complicated relationship with Jeff Bezos. And, you know, if we sort of go back to, you know, when I said you can kind of graph his trajectory, that it sort of goes up and up and up. The high point is March 2018. 
And then I think, you know, Jamal Khashoggi sends it on this like drastic sort of slide, you know, sort of roller coaster down that sort of gets him, you know, considered an international pariah, at least for a while. So Jeff Bezos, I mean, when he took this storied trip to the United States in March 2018, he met with Jeff Bezos. You know, you can go online, Google Jeff Bezos, Mohammed bin Salman, you'll find a photo of them sitting, I think, probably in maybe a fancy hotel suite somewhere, and they're sort of laughing and smiling and talking to each other. And and I mean, that was only three months, three, let's see, March, two months before he gets this text on his phone. So anyway, Jeff Bezos... Um, you know, from what his representatives have said, he because after he met Mohammed bin Salman, they exchanged phone numbers. They used to keep in touch on WhatsApp. One day, out of the blue, Jeff Bezos receives this encrypted video that has something to do with Sweden. I forget, but it's a very bizarre video. And then they examine his phone, and they find that after he receives this video, his phone starts leaking tremendous amounts of data. It's basically uploading lots of data from his phone to the internet, and so his. You know, his investigators conclude that it was that video that hacked his phone and that it was MBS who did it. And why? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of possible reasons why. Is it related to, because to, Jamal Khashoggi worked for the Washington Post and Jeff Bezos has been very critical of Saudi Arabia more recently, especially around uh, all kinds of things, including the, the hacking of, of photos of him um, and right. texts. Um, and he linked those to Saudi Arabia in some way. So there's a beginnings of a, of a face-off between Bezos and Saudi Arabia. There was also, for a while, the Saudis were courting Amazon. They wanted them to open up a data center uh, inside Saudi Arabia. And I don't exactly know when the talks for that fell apart, how, whether that was before or after Jamal. But for whatever reason, I mean, but, but there's no reason to think that when that text was sent, MBS was, I think he was still trying to court Jeff Bezos. You know, I mean, this was before the big break between them. I just think he thought he could get away with it. But Why? Like, why do it? Why? That's what I'm sort of well, perplexed about. Well, why do it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to sort of, you know, try to, you know, play armchair psychologist or whatever. But I, I mean, I do think that we have seen a pattern with MBS of just believing that he can do things, you know, believing that he can get away with things and that he should be able to get away with things that other leaders do. Um, we didn't really see a whole lot of sort of regret after Jamal Khashoggi. It took him quite a long time to come out and say, I bear some responsibility to this because it happened on my watch. You know, there were weeks and weeks of Saudi denials, Saudi misinformation, various things after it happened. And, and you know, I mean, one theory would be that that's the way it is if you're an absolute monarch and you've been, you know, you're the son of a king. I mean, you know, how many times in Mohammed bin Salman's life has somebody told him, you know what? No, like you can't do that. You know, whereas if you're me or if you're somebody else, you know, like, yeah, sometimes you fail a test or sometimes you want to do something and you don't get accepted to that university. You know, it's like what we all go through. But I don't know, if you're if you're Mohammed bin Salman, maybe you haven't had those experiences and you think that you should be able to do whatever you want. Including murdering people. Um, so when he's doing this recently, the most recent thing was obviously this, this uh, price war with Russia uh, and also the ongoing war and then the jailing of some princes, which my assumption is, and he used the excuse of corruption, but my assumption is there's some dissent about him becoming the king of Saudi Arabia. That would be my assumption, but maybe not. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe we should break these out and talk about them separately. Do you want to talk about the princes? Do you want to talk about the oil? Uh, the princes. Let's start with the princes. So the princes, um, let's just talk about who they were first. I mean, there were four who were arrested. There were sort of only two that are sort of big names that we should really know about. One is Prince Ahmed, who is actually a full brother of MBS's father. So he's MBS's direct uncle. So you would assume that they were quite close. There have been photos of Ahmed and Sanman meeting at various family occasions. They seem to be getting along very well. 
Um, it is known that when MBS was named Crown Prince, they, they have this council called the Allegiance Council of senior princes who sort of vote to approve whatever the next uh, lineup is going to be. Ahmed was one of the no votes for MBS. Uh, and it's been known that he's sort of been grumbling in private circles. We hear it here and there that, you know, Ahmed is not happy about the way things are going and he thinks MBS is rash and this and that. And, um, you know, he's mostly spending his time in London and, you know, but so anyway, that's who Prince Ahmed is. The other one is Prince Mohammed bin Nayef. And, and this guy, in a way, is more interesting because he could have been a direct threat to MBS, whereas I don't know if Ahmed could have. Mohammed bin Nayef was the interior ministry of Saudi Arabia for many years. And he was the counterterrorism czar. This guy is good friends with John Brennan. He's good friends with people in MI6, other people in the CIA, you know, many people who have been through the National Security Council. This guy was seen as like the main contact for the United States on counterterrorism. And incredibly popular in Saudi Arabia. In the mid-2000s, Al-Qaeda declared war on Saudi Arabia and started blowing up compounds and carrying out really nasty attacks. Mohammed bin Nayef is the guy who was credited with shutting that down. With you know launching the war that sort of got you know dismantled the Al Qaeda network inside of the kingdom, and so he was very popular, very popular in the West, good friends in the UK, good friends in the United States, and anyway, when MBS shows up in 2015, his father names Mohammed bin Nayef Crown Prince, and everybody says, "Wow, that's really that seems to be a good choice. This is a guy who's popular. He knows the West, good track record." Interesting way to move from that first generation of princes to that next generation of princes. Like, okay. But it becomes kind of clear over time that MBS is gunning for his job. MBS becomes number two. This, you know, he's this deputy crown prince, so second in line to the throne. And various ways he kind of starts taking pieces of Mohammed bin Nayef's portfolio away, starts kind of undermining him in various ways, tries to get a foothold in the counterterrorism world, tries to get a foothold in security, things like that. And he eventually, in mid-2017, shoves him out of the way quite unceremoniously and becomes the crown prince. Um, since then, Mohammed bin Nayef, despite sort of his prominence in Saudi Arabia and his many friends in the West, was largely under house arrest. I mean, they, they basically put him in his palace. They took away a lot of his finances, and they basically just kept an eye on him. And I think, you know, if you're Mohammed bin Salman and you've just done this to one of your elder cousins, you're kind of worried that he's going to come back at you. I mean, this is a guy who used to run the secret police. You know, this is a guy who, you know— sort of used to be the one who was in charge of cracking down Has on this sort of thing skills. inside. Has yeah, some definitely. skills. Right. So, you know, so MBS, you know, puts him in his palace and puts him under a virtual house arrest. And, you know, he'll sort of show up at family functions now and then, but he's really kind of, you know, out of his network and everything. And so it looks like what happened is basically Mohammed bin Nayef and Prince Ahmed got together and they were complaining about MBS and saying, yeah, man, you know, my, my finances are either confiscated or frozen I don't know what this guy is doing, you know, various things. The world gets back to MBS, and so he locks them up. And that's that. Or at least he arrested them, you know, brought them in for, you know. Is is there any dissent? Is there any dissent whatsoever, or does this guy have the place locked down? Well, I don't see much reason to think. I I don't see any... What's the best way to say this? I think MBS has been very successful at pulling all of the various levers of power in Saudi society into his hands. So if you look at the royal family, the royal family used to be kind of a diffuse uh, body. You had a number of princes who were senior and had large portfolios, and they had perhaps you know one in charge of the National Guard, somebody in charge of the military, somebody in charge of foreign affairs, and they kind of had their own little purviews, and MBS has kind of gotten rid of all that. Everybody answers to him. He's brought in a bunch of new younger princes who answer to him, and, you know, he's the top guy. He consolidated his power over the military. He's consolidated his control over the National Guard, the intelligence services, the secret police. They, everything comes back to him now. 
And so I find it, you know, Saudi society, you know, the only caveat is that it is a pretty murky place. It's a difficult place to really see what's going on below the surface. But from where I sit and from all the people I've talked to, I find it very hard to believe that there's any significant sort of group of people or network inside of Saudi Arabia that can organize effective uh, opposition to what he wants to do. All right. So, and then this price war, the price of, of oil is extraordinarily low now. What is the result of this? Is this going to hurt him in any way, or is it just he gets to do what he wants? Well, again, you know, we have sort of MBS wanting to have this international legitimacy, wanting to be respected by the West. And, you know, Jamal Khashoggi happens. The Saudis, you know, try to sort of act like they feel bad about it. We're going to put some people on trial. We're going to ask for the death penalty, whatever. And, and then there's this kind of sense that, okay, maybe they can move past it. 2020, Saudi took, you know, now Saudi has just taken the presidency of the G20 for the first time in Saudi history. And so if you're Mohammed bin Salman, this is a huge deal. You know, you were just not very long ago sort of seen as an international pariah. And now your country's the head of the G20, you know. So 2020 was, you know, I think a lot of people expected that this was going to be a year for... The conference came back, the investment... Yeah, you know, a lot of people said, well, terrible things happen everywhere, but business has to go on. And and, uh, and I think that for the Saudis, 2020 was going to be this year where, like, we're going to stand on the world stage. We're going to show people that we're a serious player. I believe that the summit is sometime this fall. You know, we're going to be host to the world. All these heads of state are going to be coming to Riyadh, and we're going to throw this great thing. And so, you know, I think a lot of us expected this was going to be the year that they try to sort of put some of these scandals behind them. And then, boom, oil war and, like, price crashes and, you know, serious blow to the world economy. And then you sort of wonder, like, really? Like, was that necessary? Right. So why? Well... I mean, oil Oil is the lifeblood of Saudi Arabia. I mean, the place really has nothing without oil. I mean, the, the whole reason the place still exists as it exists is because they discovered oil. Other than that, it would have been, you know, it's, it's hard to know what it would have become, but it would have been a country that probably didn't interest the, the rest of the world much at all. Um, and the oil price has been a difficult thing for MBS. Sort of, He comes in in 2015 when the price is declining and, and will remain safely below $100 a barrel for a long time. This poses big problems because it crunches the state budget. It makes it, it gives him less money to do a lot of the reforms and things that he wants to do inside the country. And anyway, so he more recently wants to, you know, starts talking to Russia about how are we going to keep the price up? Let's come to some kind of agreement. And this had worked for a while. I mean, for the last few years, they had sort of considered Russia, you know, a sort of a de facto member of OPEC, you could almost say. You know, they were agreeing on production cuts or production levels just to try to keep the price up, and and it was working. And then, you know, MBS just basically decides we need to take more steps to get the price up. He starts making outreach to the Russians. What are we going to do? Production cuts. We got to do this, do that. The Russians demur. I don't know. We're going to think about it. Let's see. They talk to them again. Well, I don't know. Let's see. And then finally the Russians say, no, we're not interested. And so... MBS basically does exactly the opposite thing. He says, okay, well, then we're going to boost production and output, and we're going to crash the price. And that's exactly what happened. And here we are. So what happens from here, from him? He's made so many errors. I mean, these errors are really quite massive. A war, a murder, you know, bollocksing all kinds of advantages, like you said. What's it called? One in the goal? Or you one in your own goal? Or something? Oh, the own goal? <laughs> yeah, own goal thing. He's doing this all the time. All kinds of stories I hear about him are, are talk about someone who's super twitchy, loves video games. True. Um, yeah. Doesn't have an attention span of a gnat, essentially, the people who've met with him in Silicon Valley. Nonetheless, they continue to accept his money, because why not? True, um, true. Including the Vision Fund, which is money all over. Uh, 
what happens? Is there any repercussions for this? Or I, I, I don't see it in Silicon Valley. I don't see them. There's a little, among some startups, for example, there's some like, I don't want that Saudi money anymore. Do you imagine that he'll get it right at some point? Um, although he doesn't certainly deserve it, uh, given his behavior so far. Um, but a lot of people I know who've met with him are quite worried about his demeanor and all kinds of, you know, talk about his the way he behaves, the way he's, again, his attention span, his ability to understand things, the kind of people he's that he has around him that are weak, obviously weak, and, and sort of yes men. Where do you see this going? This is the most critical country in the Middle East, except for Israel, I, I, correct? I, I, I mean, if, if, if people were expecting that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was going to cause King Salman to remove MBS and send him back to, you know, send him out to the ranch and say, okay, I'm going to try somebody else, that obviously didn't happen. And so if that didn't do it and the, all these other things didn't do it, I don't think there's any reason to believe that, you know, the king is suddenly going to change his mind and do it. And I think from what, from the best information we have from the situation in Saudi Arabia, I think that there's no reason to believe that when his father dies, he's not going to become king and that he could be king for many, many decades. I mean, if he lives to be as old as his father is, he'll be king into the 2060s. So this guy is going to remain there for a very long time. And I think the conversations you're talking about that the Silicon Valley people are having, you're, you're hearing all over the place. I mean, I hear it from people in the U.S. government, people in the U.K. government, people around the Middle East and various governments here who are watching this guy and and wondering, and I think the, the big question everybody is is asking is really, is he learning from his mistakes? You know, does he sort of look at the Yemen war and all of the civilian deaths and all of the money wasted and the lack of anything kind of approaching victory and say, huh, yeah, maybe we could have done that better. Does he look at the Jamal Khashoggi thing and say like, wow, we really screwed that up and we really like ruined my international reputation. Like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have, maybe we should have just let the guy write his newspaper columns. Like, what's the big deal? You know, does he look at sort of the lockup at the Ritz? Does he look up at the kidnapping at Hariri and say, wow, you know, this really made people who were thinking about doing business in Saudi Arabia scratch their heads and say, wow, do I want to deal with this? Like, do I want to take on this amount of risk if I'm going to take my business to Saudi Arabia? And, and I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I think the big question is, is he learning? And, and does he consider these mistakes? Um, he is now 34 years old, which is incredibly young. Uh, you know, there's a possibility that he will learn from them and that he will grow into being, you know, a wiser, sort of more seasoned monarch. And there's also a possibility that it's just going to be a wild, wild ride from here on out, that like every year or two, there's just going to be like a new crazy thing that, that he does that, you know, tanks the world oil price or, you know, locks up more people for this or that or hacks somebody else's, some other famous person's cell phone. And we just don't really know. But that's, that's really the question is, you know, is he learning from these things or is he not? So, last question. The Trump administration and MBS are quite close, including especially Jared Kushner. They apparently have this weird special relationship. Yes, very close. Would that change in another administration, or will it be like, look, we need these guys for now as long as we need their oil and their money and we want to sell them things like weapon systems? Do you imagine it changing in any administration, or is this unusual? Well, I think this is definitely unusual, um, kind of the, you know, if, if, if MBS had done some of these things under a Barack Obama administration, I don't think that he would have received as much cover as he did from the Trump administration. No, because there was um, a, I mean, and was... I don't want to make it sound like the Obama administration. I mean, the Obama administration, and they still sold tens of billions of dollars in arms to Saudi Arabia while the Yemen war was going on. So I don't want to make it sound like Obama was, you know, really tough on MBS all the time. But, you know, when you look at the kind of cover that Trump gave him after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, it would have been very, it's difficult to imagine Obama doing the same thing. 
I don't want to speculate too much about future administrations, but I think what it's because we don't know, you know, we don't know who it's going to be. But um, I think it's fair to say that a that his relationship with Trump is quite exceptional, and that the anger at MBS is vast inside of the U.S. government and probably bigger than we've seen, you know, maybe since I don't know. I mean, I think it surpasses 9-11 because that was a different thing. Maybe it goes back to the you know the 1970s and the oil embargo. I wasn't really around then, and so I don't know how, how much anger there was. But he's done things that have angered the CIA. He's done things that have angered a lot of people at the State Department, career people. He's done things that have angered people in both houses of Congress and in both parties. You know, you look at sort of the number of times that Congress people have come together to try to pass legislation to stop the arms sales to Yemen. We're not talking to, this is for once not a bipartisan issue. You've had Republican, you know, Lindsey Graham has become a huge critic of MBS. Um, so this is not a partisan issue. And, you know, in the Democratic, before the Democratic field really thinned down, you had basically nobody who was going to say anything nice about MBS. You know, nobody was really going to stand up and say, yes, these people are important for us and we look forward to selling arms. Um and I could be wrong, you know. I mean, the U.S. at the same time, we've been dealing with dictators for a very long time. And, you know, it's part of the way that we do business. But it is, it, yeah. it will be surprising the first time we see, say, let's say that, you know, we have a Democratic president. Will this person be as willing as Donald Trump to invite Mohammed bin Salman to the Oval Office for a photo op? I don't know. MBS, will, you know, will he feel comfortable coming to Pennsylvania Avenue when you might have protesters show upside holding saws and pictures of Jamal Khashoggi, he might decide to pass. He might decide that, you know, that's not worth the news coverage. Um, so I think in that way, we're definitely, we're definitely in a new era in terms of the way that sort of, I'd say, the broader U.S. government sees Saudi Arabia. And that could very well be reflected in a new administration, if there is one. All right. Should Silicon Valley be accepting the amount of money it is from this guy? Oh, you know, I can't take that question. <laughs> I'm not an opinion. I'm a reporter. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I Will can't, they I can't take I don't think they should. Will they? Well, I think, I, I mean, I think the interesting question is what is the risk premium and how does that factor into their calculation? Like if, if MBS had just been the first guy that we talked about in the early part of the interview, if he had been the guy who gave women the right to drive and brought movie theaters and, and uh, loosened the social codes, then I think Silicon Valley would love this. You know, they would love to go, let's go set up a thing in Neom and let's go, you know, Facebook's going to open an office. They, you know, they, they probably would have been more than happy to be on board with this. And I the think Neom what he's is done is... city of the future. Just let's, let's say yeah, Neom, we haven't talked explain. About that, it's a city but, yeah, of, yeah. it's their city of the future. City of the future is supposed to cost $500 billion. It's going to be sort of staffed by robots and fueled by solar power. And, you know, this is, this is it's kind of his pie in the sky project for the future. You know, I think that what all these companies have now is they have a risk premium that they have to take into account that they didn't have before. And everybody who thinks about it, they say, oh, wow, Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of money there. You know, we could really make a lot of money. But do we really want it on our website that we're like in business with these guys? You know, is Human Rights Watch going to come after us or other human, you know, other activists going to kind of criticize us? Is that going to hurt our business model in other parts of the world? And you know, that for me is the interesting question. I mean, I, it, you know, they're not just going to say, we don't like Saudi Arabia, we're not going to do business there. But for me, the more interesting question is how that affects their calculus when they're trying to decide whether it's worth getting on a plane, flying to Saudi Arabia, opening an office, putting some money into a business or not. I just think that all of these things that he's done have made that a much harder decision for these people to make than it would have been otherwise. 100%. You're not going to see a tour of Google anytime soon, I would imagine. Unlikely. 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 And then, again, since you mentioned the last thing, this Neom project, is it just a 
fan, like a mirage? I hate to use a, a desert metaphor, but is it just a mirage or is there real technology behind this? Oh, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. I mean, just to give a sense of, for, for what this thing is, I mean, you know, Mohammed bin Salman announced this in late 2017, surprises everybody at this investment conference and says, we are going to build, this thing is going to be, you know, we're going to spend $500 billion. We're going to have business people write the regulations in order to encourage investment, to encourage growth, and to encourage innovation. We're going to, you know, um, it's going to be, you know, they, they, I mean, some of the language in the documents is incredible. He basically said, we're going to create a new way for humanity to live. Like, this is not just a development project, you know, like a new housing development or something like that. No, no, no. This is supposed to be like a new model for humanity. That's the way that they're thinking about it. Then there was a, you know, the Wall Street Journal got some amazing internal documents about this that really, you know, at the beginning, a lot of us were like, okay, well, we'll see, you know, good luck with that. The Wall Street Journal got some amazing documents where, you know, they're talking about MBS really wanted to have a beach with glow-in-the-dark sand. Yeah. And they sort of got all these scientists together to figure out, like, wow, is there a safe way to make glow-in-the-dark sand? And I don't know if we can really do it. You know, he wanted to have, you know, a fake moon that would rise over Neom at night that would be hoisted into the air by drones. And you know, um, you know, and if if Saudi wants this thing to be run by robots and wants to have solar energy, I mean, Saudi Arabia is the world's largest oil producer. They they don't really have any history with solar energy. She's like, sure, they can buy these things from abroad, but they don't have any history with this stuff. Robots? I mean, I don't. I I would be surprised if you know one of the major Saudi universities even has a robotics program. But they're not known for producing robots, so they're going to have to buy all this stuff. So you know, will it turn out? But again, like if he had not done all this crazy stuff that made people sort of hesitate to be associated with him and with Saudi Arabia, Neom would have been a lot easier. Now it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard to convince the people who do have those skills and who own those technologies to move to Saudi Arabia and live in this weird place out in the middle of the desert and uh, you know try to build this, this sort of Saudi Arabian Xanadu. Right. So I don't know. We'll see where it goes. You know, maybe he'll surprise us, and in twenty years we'll say, "Oh my God, it's Neom, it's amazing." I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say it's going nowhere. Although I would love to have glowing sand. There's just I mean, no who way wouldn't, it, right? You know, yeah. who wouldn't? Anyway, you know, it, it reminds me of a saying I say all the time: "Was you know, he's so poor, all he has is money." Uh, I don't think he's going to build it. And I think it's going to be difficult. You're right in getting technology people to go there and do this. Um, although, you know, everybody has a price, as they say. Anyway, I really recommend this book. It's a really important book to understand a critical figure who is not going away, as you say, Ben, um, and who is going to influence all kinds of things from uh, in the world economy, including in tech and elsewhere. MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman by Ben Hubbard of The New York Times. I urge you to read it. Thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ben, where can people find you online? Uh, NYT Ben on Twitter. And in the New York Times. And read his story today about the hacker. It's fantastic. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcast, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Doug. Way Studios and Art Chung. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. <laughs>